It is good. Ooh, let's try that again. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. I was about to say, we just, I could hear all of you singing, so I anticipated hearing a hearty good morning. And so that was, that was much better that time around. So uh, thank you for humoring with that. Um, I do want to affirm uh, what Corey said. Uh, I, too, uh, welcome your children staying in service, uh, along with the rest of our church family as well. So, uh, Corey, thank you for clarifying that and uh, for letting our folks know that uh, opportunities abound both next door, uh, but also opportunities to train up a child here uh, in this place. Now, if you've not been with us uh, at all, we have been walking through 1 Corinthians today. Uh, Many of you will be happy to know as you have reached out to me this week. Yes, we have moved on from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We move now into 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and believe it or not, we're going to cover an entire uh, chapter today. Now, as we get into this chapter, I do want to preface this one by saying that this week, along with the next several weeks, as we look into chapter 6 and as we move from there in 1 Corinthians, we are about to hit some very serious topics and some very serious subjects. And so in light of our text today here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I am hoping that as as a faith family, we will see how the body of Christ should now respond to sin. And so I'm hoping that today will be an opportunity for us to do some self-reflection, uh, not only about some of maybe some of our own struggles and our own sins, uh, but also how uh, we should respond, or better yet, maybe we do some reflection on our uh, lack of response, if you will. And so um, we are going to be challenged along with the Corinthian Christians, both today and in uh, the weeks ahead. And as we walk through this text together, I want to ask you to just think upon the question that was presented to me this morning as I was being encouraged by some other pastors, and that question was this. When you come to church and you think about your own church, is this a place where people can struggle together? I want to leave you with that question. I'm going to bring that question up again at the end of the service, and I'm going to continue to keep this question in front of us because as believers, we are going to struggle. And so I want you to know my heart that as we preach this text in the following weeks that... The goal is not to point and prod with malicious intent, but rather it is to speak truth according to the word in grace and love, recognizing that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, and thanks be to God, by the grace of God, we have Jesus Christ. However, we as people will still struggle. So is this a place where we can struggle together? You see, here's the reality upon thinking upon that question and how it is that we should now respond to sin Sin can and will enter the camp if we allow it. Brothers and sisters around us right now, and you may not know it, are probably struggling with some sort of sin in their life. They are seeking to overcome some sort of hook that is currently in their life. There may even be some who become so rooted within their own sin that they begin to justify what it is that they're doing. And so what ends up happening is that those of us who have seen this sin, those of us who have heard this sin, we may begin to think to ourselves that what they are doing in justifying their sin is okay because ultimately that's between them and God. You see, we can get to a point as a faith family where we begin to justify their actions for them. And we hear this all the time. People will say things to us like this, well... Who are we to judge? Or they say this, God is love. And since God is love, 
God will forgive them even though they continue in unrepentant sin. This week, I actually listened to a story and I heard a, uh, an abortion advocate who claimed to be a Christian uh, share about how they, as a, not only an advocate but also a doctor, felt justified in the murder of unborn babies because they were assured of their salvation. They said that they knew this for two reasons. One, because they attend church, and two, because they pray. Now, I do want to say, praise God that they attend church, praise God that they pray. However, I am not sure that I would classify them as a believer because I don't believe that they are reading nor interpreting the Bible correctly. So, that leads to the question, how should we respond to sin? Or perhaps a better question for us to think about this morning would be this. Why should we respond to sin? I mean, if it's not our issue and what they are doing is happening over there, even though we see it, even though we know about it, why should it even be a concern to us? And we may be right. Maybe it's not our issue. But what happens when all of a sudden that sin begins to affect more than those who are directly involved? What happens when we as a faith family turn a blind eye to those who are speaking and acting in a way that goes against the word of God? What happens when we've seen the sin directly and we choose to say and do nothing? When our text this morning, Paul actually addresses this very issue with the Corinthian Christians as he challenges them, and I believe challenges us today, by answering the question, how should we respond to sin? So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you now to join me. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and once you have found your place in the Word of God, if you were able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul, writing to the Corinthian Christians, writes these words. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, Paul now begins really a new section here in his letter to the first Corinthians, or excuse me, not to the first Corinthians, but to the Corinthians themselves here in first Corinthians, where he is actually taking on just a lot of new subjects and new topics. But ultimately what's happening beginning here and as we move forward is the church is being reprimanded and warned to address the sin that is now in their camp. Now, upon initial reading, it looks as though Paul is just specifically writing about a particular sin and calls for the removal of that particular person. Now, this is true, and although it is true, I also believe that upon initial another reading that there is actually another issue at play that Paul is equally concerned with when it comes to the Corinthian Christians. So let's just start by addressing the sin. What was the sin and what was going on in the church? Paul tells us in verse 1, for a man has his father's wife. Now, again, I'm not going to go into detail recognizing that we have younger ears in the room, but here's what's happening. Clearly, a son has entered into an inappropriate relationship either with his mom or more than likely his stepmom because the dad remarried. That's why she is now called his father's wife. So Paul now wants this sin addressed. And Paul actually goes one step further later in our text in verse 11 when he says, And not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Paul is literally speaking of the people committing these sins who have now justified their own sins and refused to let it go. So notice in this moment, Paul's not talking about a a, a one and done, a a person who has repented and and, and come to faith in Christ or has returned in grace. No, he he is speaking of those who are actively engaging and continue to engage in what is or what can be called known sin. They have probably been confronted or maybe they haven't. But either way, whether they've been confronted or not, they know what it is that they're doing is wrong according to the word of God, and they refuse to change, repent, or to do anything to lead them back to the grace that is found in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And then here's what they've done. They justify their sins, and then they say, but I'm still a believer. They've literally justified their sins, and they have said to the church, I'll just have to deal with this with God on the day of judgment. You see, here's probably a simple fact about these people. Chances are they've probably already isolated themselves from those who want to hold them accountable because they don't desire accountability. Chances are that they're still a part of the community of the body of believers to which we see is happening here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but yet they've probably withdrawn from the community that ultimately seeks to call them to strive for holiness. These folks still attend worship, but all the while in attending worship, they are still careful with who it is that they engage with because they don't want anyone to call them out for their sin or to hold them accountable to their sin. Now, before we take a deeper dive into this text, before we begin to think, well, this isn't me, 
I'm not a sexually immoral person, nor am I in a sexually immoral relationship at this time. I want you to be careful because I want you to heed the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, when he says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, are you hearing what Jesus has said? He says it's not just about the act, but rather if you look at her, not looking at her as a beautiful person created in the image of God, but rather as worldly temptation to which you desire to consume just like the fruit in the garden, then you have sinned. Thus, you are a sexually immoral person because to God, the thought and the action are the same. You see, it's not enough for us to say, well, I'm not acting upon it. So long as I think about it, no one's getting hurt. You see, you may never act upon it. But even if you're thinking about it, and you're thinking about it consistently, regularly, all the time, you may find yourself in unrepentant sin. And let me remind you of the words of 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, when it says this, For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, God sees the heart and God sees the mind. He sees the thoughts as if you were broadcasting them at the AMC movie theater in surround sound. That's how clear our sin is to God, both in action, also in thought and in heart. So clearly there is a sin issue within the church amongst the Corinthian Christians. And so Paul wants this sin addressed because it's going unchecked. And he wants to see these sinners repent and ultimately to see them restored in grace. However, as I stated earlier, I believe there's actually another issue at play. An issue that weighs heavily upon Paul. Thus, I think for Paul, this might be a bigger problem at the moment because here's what's going to happen if you read ahead in the chapter 6. You're going to see Paul circle right back around to this issue of sexual immorality. So we're going we're to come right back to it, but there's a, another issue here that Paul wants to address, which is the response of the Corinthian Christians, or better yet, the lack of response. And sadly, this is a problem that we still see as Christians today. So let's answer the question, how should we respond to sin? Paul gives us three answers to that question. The first one being found in verses one through five. He says this, when it comes to sin and how we should respond, sin itself needs to be addressed directly. Sin itself needs to be addressed directly. Notice how Paul opens with, outrage towards the Corinthian Christians. In verse 1, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. In other words, Paul has been given a report that there is a man in the church who has engaged in active sexual sin. And then he goes a step further and he says this, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Notice that Paul is saying, I am shocked by your behavior. I am shocked by your lack of response because this sin is so bad. It's so heinous. It's so gross that even the pagans around them, which, oh, by the way, when he uses the word pagans, he's actually just talking about the Gentiles. 
But he was more referring to the Gentiles who weren't believers. He says, even those other Gentiles who don't believe in Jesus Christ, they know what's happening within the church and they are disgusted by it. Even they are repulsed by it. They're so repulsed by it that they don't even want to be a part of what is happening. And yet it was the Corinthian Christians who were tolerating the sin. It was the Corinthian Christians who not only were tolerating the sin, but but ultimately they had become complacent to it. And so Paul says in verse 2, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Paul has heard that the Corinthian Christians are so puffed up about how they have responded to this sin that they truly believed that what they were doing was the right thing, which in reality was nothing at all, even though they knew the sin was wrong. I mean, it's almost like the Corinthian Christians were treating this moment like a, look at us. Look at this thing that we did. Like we literally took the stained glass off the windows and put clear windows in so people could see in and we could see out. And guess what they see? They see our sin, but it's okay. Just look at us. You see, they were proud because they have a perverted view of the free grace that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus, their poor understanding of grace Their poor understanding and their poor belief has now led to a tolerance for sin. Now, again, pay attention to these five verses because Paul does not address why this particular sin is bad. In fact, his lack of speaking to the sin itself and why it is bad clearly shows us that Paul knows that the Corinthian Christians know and understand that this particular behavior is sinful. And so Paul says to them, look, you should not be proud with how you have handled this moment. Rather, if anything, you should be grieved because this sin is still present and active in your camp. And so in saying these words, Paul is hoping that this grief will then lead to action. And that the Corinthian Christians would respond directly instead of Passively, That's why Paul says to them, and let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul again says, and this sin should break your heart. And it should break your heart so much so that it should cause you to respond directly. Now what's interesting from there is we move into verse 3 and 4 and we get a very complicated and, and controversial passage that honestly I don't have a whole lot of time to unpack right now, but I'd love to talk to you about later. And many scholars have actually debated this particular passage. However, the main point still remains the same and it's something that, that cannot be debated. Look with me again in verse 3. Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now let's just pause there. Paul knows what the church needs to do. And so Paul states that he is with them. Remember, it was Paul who has already established himself as their spiritual father. It was Paul who had already said that I am with you and I have been with you and I was there when you came to faith in Christ and I was there with you planning a church and I still love you and care about you even though I am no longer present with you. And so now as a body of believers, you now need to gather together and really deliver this man 
over to his sin. Now, Paul believes that he is now able to pronounce judgment and ultimately calls upon the Corinthian Christians who are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and with the power of the Lord Jesus to do the same thing. In other words, in, in invoking the name of Jesus, Paul is directly pointing the Corinthian Christians to the practice of discipline the way Jesus Christ taught it back in Matthew chapter 18. And so Paul recognizes that for the church, this moment is going to be hard. It's going to be hard to look a brother and a sister in the eye and say, you are in unrepentant sin. And that's why he says to them, man, I am with you in spirit. He says that I understand. And though I am not present physically, I still love you. I still desire for you to grow in holiness. I'm still your spiritual father. You are children to me and I still care for you. And all I want to see you do is collectively do the next right thing, which is the next biblical thing. But then notice this about Paul. Notice that Paul does not call upon the leaders to address the sin. He calls on the congregation. You see, we can't just expect our leaders and our elders to always deal with all the problems. We can't just say, man, I heard this hard issue was going on at the church. I'm just going to tell the elders about it and then I'm going to walk away. Okay? We don't have a monthly elder meeting to sit down and say, hey, everybody, elders, let's talk about all the emails and the text receive of all the issues that we now currently need to fix. That's not what we do. Rather, in grace and in love, it's the congregation, the body of believers, that's going to have to address the sin. It's the body of believers that's going to now have to get their hands dirty as well. It's the body of believers who are going to have to be willing to faithfully speak into these matters that they have directly seen and directly heard. And I'm going to tell you, it's why, and I say this with grace and, and, and mercy, it's why and we don't do this often, and praise be to God, we don't do this often. But it's why we actually practice this thing at church called member care. Okay? And some people hear member care and they think, oh, we care for widows and shut-ins and all that. Yeah, we do that too. That's just, that's care. We just call that care. Okay? But there's this thing called member care where sometimes we find ourselves in a, in a position where in grace we have to address sin within the church. And we do so in and through our member meetings. Now, why do we do that? Because just as Paul says to the Corinthian Christians, we cannot pass accountability on to someone else. We have to be involved. As a faith family seeking to grow together in holiness, we are called directly to call out the sin when we see it. Now again, hear my heart on this, okay? This does not mean that when we hear of sin, we then run to that person and become judge, jury, and executioner as if we have all the information. But it also doesn't mean that because we've heard of sin, we now run and hide as if we're washing our hands clean of what is happening. No, this, this particular sin that Paul is talking about was seen by the church. It was heard directly by the church, and thus the church now needed to address it together. And so we get to verse 5, and Paul says, as a spiritual father present with them, he gives them this advice. You are to deliver this man to Satan 
for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I mean, this sounds rough, doesn't it? I mean, I don't hear anybody using that language anymore. I don't hear anybody looking at someone who's in unrepentant sin and saying, we're going to just turn you over to Satan. Maybe some of us have used those phrases recently. (laughs) Sounds rough, right? But I want us to pay attention to Paul's words here because Paul had a greater purpose with these words. I mean, his words here and his purpose were salvific, if you will, okay? And what I mean by that was, was read the rest of the phrase. Paul wanted to see the man saved in the day of the Lord. That's the phrase to underline. That is what Paul is going for. And the only way to see that happen was to turn the man over to his own sin. Paul is saying that this man is now in unrepentant sin. He knows that he is in unrepentant sin. And so now because of that, he is in the realm of Satan because he has no desire to repent of this sin. And so Paul says to the church, expel the man from the church. Now, in expelling the man, or as Paul says, calling for the destruction of the flesh, Paul is not wishing nor desiring for the man to be killed for his sin. Paul is rather hoping that by being excluded from the fellowship, by being excluded from the the church, by being excluded from the body of believers, that he would see his error, that he would see his sin, that he would repent of his sin, that he would seek forgiveness and turn anew to pursuing righteousness and holiness. So again, what we have here is really Paul's care and concern and love for the church. Again, his desire was that he wanted the man saved before the day of the Lord, which, by the way, is the day of judgment. Now again, Paul does not guarantee that the man will be saved because his salvation at this point is dependent upon his own repentance. However, Paul does want the church to to still deal with the sin directly and prayerfully see that person be restored as they seek repentance from their sin. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, as Paul says to us in these first five verses, blatant and unrepentant sin should not be tolerated by the church. And so the church is now called upon to collectively hold one another accountable. And again, please don't miss Paul's point here. We don't, we don't practice church discipline, according to Paul, according to our church. We don't practice church discipline in order to be mean, vindictive people. Okay, we're not, we don't practice church discipline because we're seeking to just to nitpick people's lives because, because you're not like us in every area. That's not what we're doing here. But rather, we are called in grace and love to practice dealing with sin directly with the hopes of seeing people turn from their sins before the day of judgment comes. Because here's the reality. If people truly believe that they're going to enter into judgment and unrepentant sin and take that up with God, it's too late. There is no justification at that point. And thus, why Paul calls the church to deal directly with sin now. Secondly, Paul moves from there in verses 6 through 8, and he says this, how should we respond to sin? Not only do we deal with it directly, but this, we need to understand that tolerating sin will defile the church. 
You see, this was Paul's concern for the Corinthian church. Verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now again, Paul is, is referencing back here the feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to give a visual illustration to show the Corinthian Christians that the leaven itself represents evil. It represents corruption. And if it's allowed to be tolerated and, and it's allowed to be, to be maintained under this practice of pseudo grace, if you will, and it's continually being celebrated, then sin can and will spread from the offender to the church in its entirety. You see, this happens when we fail to understand what sin is. This, fail, this, this actually happens when we fail to understand how we should now respond to sin. And ultimately it can spread even when it's someone who we look at and say, well, they're a friend of mine. I, I know they wouldn't do that. Let me tell you something. Just because we're friends doesn't mean that, that, that all of a sudden we're, we're never going to fall into sin. It is possible for, for friends and family to fall into unrepentant sin. And sin is a serious issue because the reality is this. When we gather together, if you didn't pick this up today and how we were singing and how we were praying, we gather and we serve and we worship a very holy God. And he will not allow sin in his presence. And so Paul says this, since Jesus Christ has been sacrificed and we are all made new in him, we need to mortify sin. We need to remove sin. Or better yet, verse 7, we need to cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. You see, for Paul, the church was to remain pure. For Paul, the church was to continue to strive after holiness, recognizing that it was going to continue to struggle. That's kind of that whole pressing on that Paul talks about, this, that you're still going to have those struggles, but we should still continue to strive to be, to be holy. Why? Because at the end of days, we're going to realize, if we don't know it already, that the church itself belongs to Jesus Christ. The church, we are the bride of Christ. Thus, for Paul, the sin and the sinner must be removed. He says in verse 8, he says the old leaven, not only the sinner, but the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. Yeah, that's got to go too. You see, since we are in Christ, we have been made pure. We have been sanctified. We have been made holy. Therefore, we cannot boast, nor can we tolerate sin and allow it to spread and ultimately defile the church. Paul says this, he says, listen, if we're going to boast in anything, let it be the unleavened bread of sincerity and the unleavened bread of truth. You see, for us today as a church, sincerity and truth really should be the marks of a church. But when the church remains in sin, meaning it's defiled, then we're missing the mark of what Christ has called us to. As a church marked with sincerity and truth, we are not called, nor can we sit by passively and watch our friends remain in unrepentant sin and then simply say, well, that's between them and God. It's not my issue. We can't in that moment say, well, that doesn't affect me. 
because that's between them. You see, here's the truth. Hoping in grace. Not that we shouldn't hope in grace. Don't hear that. But just hoping in grace that all of this will just magically get worked out without seeing the need to practice discipline and for discipline to be practiced leads no one to repentance. Let me, let me unpack what I'm talking about here so you understand. We can't see and know sin and then sit on the sideline and say, I hope it gets worked out. Paul says, no, 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 no. You can hope it gets worked out, but you need to be praying for them. You can hope it gets worked out, but if you've seen it, you might need to point them to the Bible. You can, you can hope it gets worked out, but if you've seen it and you've heard it, it might be time as a brother or sister in Christ to step in and say, help me understand what's going on here. Why? Because you know that one day all of us are going to stand before judgment. And we want to see people get it right now. You see, we are not living in the light of the hope that we have in Christ if we allow sin to go unchecked. We cannot boast in grace and sing about grace while sin continues to actively abound in our midst. Again, if sin is allowed to be tolerated, it will consume our hearts, it will defile the church, and we've got to be careful what it is that we're boasting in. We've got to be careful what it is that we're tolerating because that sin may spill into our lives and then all of a sudden we find ourselves justifying our own sins and it just kind of continues to repeat on down each row of the church. If sin is left unchecked, if sin is tolerated, it will defile the church. And as Paul has already shared, it will not only defile the church, it will affect the church's ability to minister to its community. Remember what he said? Even the pagans know, and they are disgusted. Paul continues from there in our third point. Verses 9 through 13. So he's already told us that how we should respond, we should respond directly. He has shared that if we tolerate sin, it will defile the church. And then here's where Paul ends, verses 9 through 13. He says this, if there is no repentance, if the sinner has been confronted and there is no repentance, then cut the member off from the fellowship. Now, before we go any further, I want to commend to you two books, okay? Um, I meant to bring them. I forgot. That's on me. It's in my notes. Johnny, bring the books. Johnny forgot. I'm sorry, notes. Sorry to you all. Okay? Two books I want to recommend to you. First of all is The Mortification of Sin by John Owens. If you've not read that, particularly the abridged version of that book, you don't have to get the original. Hard language. There's a great abridged version out there. Get it. Read it. It'll help you identify sin in your life and put sin to death. Powerful book. Read it. You can knock it out. Super easy read. Okay? Even if you're not a reader, read it. Right? The second book I want to commend to you is Jonathan Lehman's book on church membership. Okay? I want, to, I, want to, I want to encourage you to read that book. And if you don't have a copy of that book, we have copies of that book. And I will gladly put one in your hands for free today. Okay? And if I run out, we'll order more. All right? 
So I want to commend those two books to you in light of this third point. So let's just jump right into this text real quick, verse, uh, verses 9 through 13. Now, we've already addressed the sin issues that Paul mentioned back in verse 10 and the second half of verse 11. So I'm not, I'm not going to go back to those. We've already hit those. However, there are some phrases in the text that really jump out to really affirm the removal of a member. And again, I am intentionally using the word member here, okay? And when I say member, I am speaking of a church member, a church member, a member of the church, right? I don't know how else to say that to make this more abundantly clear. Now, the reason why I'm, I'm emphasizing member here is because there are too many Christians walking around today that are telling us that all we need to be concerned with and focused with is being faithful members of the universal church. And I want to tell you, that's good, but that's only a part of the equation. In order to be a faithful believer, not only should we affirm the universal church, as in the church that has been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, but because of God's salvation through Christ, we should now desire to be a part of the local church. And so people would ask this question, Pastor, where do we see church membership in the Bible? Here it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Just to name one of several places, this passage is clear evidence that the Corinthian church was made up of faithful members. Because if those members were in unrepentant sin, Paul says they can be removed. Now, some people would argue with me at this point and say, but Johnny, the word membership is not there. And I would say to you, you're right. It's not there. Church membership, the words themselves, is not specifically stated in the Bible. However, the concept of church membership is very present. And if you still disagree with that, then I would say to you, explain to me the use of the word Trinity. Because the word Trinity itself is not in the Bible, but we believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the concept is very present. It's just the word is not directly stated. Therefore, we know that church membership is in the word of God and what it is that we are called to. I digress. Different message for another day. Coming back to the text, verse 9, Paul says, And I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Now, Paul had clearly uh, had written to them already before, and either they either didn't understand Paul, which is kind of, I think, my way of more trying to show a little bit more grace here. I think what's probably more true is that they read Paul's previous words, and in their own pride, the, the Corinthian Christians simply chose to ignore them. But I want us to notice three phrases that really jump out in the text here in verses 9 and verse 11. Paul uses these phrases. Verse 9, he says, not to associate. Verse 11, he builds upon that and says, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Verse 11, he ends by saying, not even to eat with such a one. Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians that if you have a brother and a sister who is active in sin and you know it and they know it, then do not even break bread with them. And we're not just talking about communion here, guys. That, that, that's part of it. But Paul's saying, man, don't even eat a meal with them until that sin is addressed. Now, this was important in Paul's day, especially before the Corinthian Christians, because in Paul's day, if you ate a meal with someone, it meant that you were in fellowship with them. It meant that you associated with them, that you would affirm their choices, that you would affirm their sins. And so Paul says, hey, listen, don't do that. 
Don't give affirmation to people who are in known sin. And then here's what happened. Paul then explains why he writes this way in verses 12 and 13. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Notice how Paul clearly distinguishes between the unbeliever and the believer who is in unrepentant sin. Paul says, listen, associate with the unbeliever. Build relationships with the unbeliever because we want them to know the hope that is found in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when unbelievers act like unbelievers, it shouldn't surprise us. When someone cuts us off in traffic, It shouldn't surprise us. They're an unbeliever probably. Better response would be, thanks be to God, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to follow you and we can talk about the gospel. No one has done that in this room, I bet. We might be sitting at a a restaurant or or, or at Walmart and someone gets upset with us because we take the the last box of Pop-Tarts and they start flipping out. In that moment, we should say, Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord? Chances are they're probably going to say no. In that moment, our response should not be, well, then I will not share my pop tarts with you. (laughs) Maybe the better response would be, hey, let me go pay for these and we'll walk outside and open up a pack and I'd love to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to build relationships with non-believers for the purpose of seeing them come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying, no, that still should continue. Okay, don't, don't just cut yourself off from the world. However, when it comes to the unrepentant believer, the one who claims to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, yet they continue to remain in unrepentant sin, Paul says this, have nothing to do with them. Why would Paul say that? Paul answers his own question. He says, because here's the reality. God will judge the heart of all people. But God will judge the unbeliever based upon the issue of salvation. Thus, when it comes to the unbeliever, we don't need to take action against them because they're literally acting like the world. And there's a salvation issue there. God will will sort that out. However, the unrepentant believer should know better. They know the church. They know the word. They know the body. They know the calling and the understanding of what it means to be a part of a local body. They understand that the body is called to purity. They understand and know already that the body is called to holiness. And yet in their sin, they seek to defile the community. And so Paul says, as believers in Christ, we are called by God to preserve the holiness of the community. We are called by God to maintain the community according to the word of God. Now, I'm going to go ahead and be honest. I don't know how many of you guys read ahead. I don't know if many of you imagined walking in today going, man, I cannot wait to be at Southside. I am looking forward to being encouraged today. And all you have heard is sin, 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 exile. <laughs> This is not the norm. This is just being faithful to the word. So I know this message is hard today. But sin is a very 
hard topic to discuss. And we are called to disassociate from unrepentant believers. We are called to remove them from the table. We are called to to not break bread with them. Again, this seems so harsh and it just goes against everything that we believe about grace and mercy and forgiveness. And again, I want to remind you that Paul's not saying these words and, and we're not saying these words because we want to be mean, vindictive people. That we want to be a people who are, who are sitting in judgment over others with, with hatred and malice in our own heart. We're not, we're not walking around just inspecting everybody going, mm, I'm waiting to smell that sin and when I do, you are out. That's not what Paul's calling us to do here. Rather, what Paul's hoping to see and, and what we want to see when people are in unrepentant sin is this, is, is that we want to see them repent. We want them to understand that when we, when we live our lives in unrepentant sin, that unrepentant sin will disconnect us from the body of believers. It will, it will defile the church. It'll, it'll disconnect us from the beauty of being in fellowship and in community with God and in fellowship and in community with the church. You see, here's what Paul has for us in verses 9 through 13. This truth, he says this. He says, listen, treating a person as if nothing has changed in the midst of their sin misleads the unrepentant believer into thinking that their sin is not serious. So we are called to discipline. And all discipline is to be done in love with the hopes of seeing a brother and sister repent and turn from their sins and come hard after Jesus Christ. Discipline is also practiced in love because we are ever watchful of our own nature and our own ability to fall into sin. And sometimes in falling into that sin, it could lead us into a a trap of unrepentant sin. So in love, we not only watch over one another, In love, we watch over ourselves according to the word. I love what Thomas Schreiner says about this point. He says this. Believers who sin egregiously and fail to repent are not put to death by the church, but are excommunicated from the congregation, which means they are not permitted to take the Lord's Supper and enjoy fellowship with the church as they did previously. And it's all done because we want people to see the seriousness and the weight of their decisions, the seriousness and the weight of their sin, and to see them return to Christ, to be in fellowship with the church again. Let me again say this. The goal for holding people accountable to their sin and how we respond The goal is repentance and grace. That was the goal for Paul. It was the goal for the Corinthian Christians. And it should be the goal for the church today. Now, just to give you a bit of good news. If you continue to read the rest of this story, you will eventually find yourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And what we see in that moment is Paul calls the Corinthian Christians back to this moment. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he teaches them, forgive the man who has come to you in repentance. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, don't just forgive them, reconcile with them. You see, that is the hope that Paul has for the church. 
He wants the church to repent. He wants the church to pursue holiness so that hearts are brought back together, so that hearts are reunited together as they continue to draw closer to the day of the Lord. And so this should be our desire as well when it comes to dealing with sin. So as we close our text this morning, we close with Paul answering our question, how should we respond to sin? Paul says, again, simply, deal with sin directly. Do not boast nor tolerate in sin, for the boasting and tolerance will defile the church. And if there is sin and no repentance, then cut the member off. You see, sin is a very serious thing, according to the Word of God. But according to the Word of God, so should be our response. And as covenant members of Southside Baptist Church, let us not take lightly the call of what it means to be a member of the local church. We have a responsibility and we have the joy of holding one another accountable in grace and in love and calling one another to continue to grow in holiness for the day of the Lord is coming. I'll close with Charles Spurgeon and his words. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, says it this way. When we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. To God be the glory for the grace that he has shown. For to God be the glory for the grace that we do not deserve. Let's praise him together now. And let's pray. May the glory know.